0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back. In the first five minutes of today's episode, Aaron and I discuss the role of macro in fundamentals-based stock picking, and we devote the remainder of our conversation to Copart and IAA. Um, Before we begin, a disclaimer. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any investment decision. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security. The security is discussed on this podcast, May be owned by persons being interviewed. Before making any investment decision, please consult an investment advisor.
1: And I sent you my letter. Like I think people are being so kind of myopic on like what's going on near term that yeah they're just putting like undue weight on the latest data point, which is obviously not the right way of doing things. And so I think that's that's like increased volatility. And like you saw these when the market's selling off three four percent on you know, some sort of like trade rumor or economic news. It's like,
0: yeah. So, I mean, with the sell-off last course, something that, that I've observed and I also noticed this in the 2008, 2009 period is that, you know, otherwise fundamental bottom up stock stock pickers start becoming more macro theorists and market commentators. Yeah. Yeah. They start like pontificating on fed policy or, you know, how the markets are priced in for this, or that, or speculating on the shape of the yield curve. I guess, like if you if you hold a bunch of cyclical stocks, um, housing, construction, chemicals, trucking, whatever, I can understand how it would be useful to have a strong opinion on some of this stuff. But you know, if you're if you're one of these absolute return investors who holds a concentrated portfolio of compounders over you know a ten to twenty year time horizon, then you should be spending like almost no time on the macro, right? So. <laughs> It's a matter of where you place your time. Almost all of your time should be spent worrying about the competitive landscape, and not whether you know market participants are being too bullish or bearish about the markets as a whole. Well, well I guess I, let I, me ask you because I, I know I think we, we we disagree about this a little bit. Yeah,
1: I disagree with you because I mean I think you're always trying to look at um, like opportunity cost, right? So yeah, um, you want to look at let's say you found a stock and you just want to ignore kind of what's going on in the economy and you say. Good company to own. I think I'll get 15, 20 percent a year. Um, yeah, you know, growth in this thing, whatever it is, and you have you have like a ten year, twenty year horizon. Yeah, you know that's great in a certain environment, but um, in other environments, that's not so good. And so if you have like you know what happened in Q four when you had macroeconomic risks increase, risk tolerance fell, and so all of a sudden that twenty percent return that you're looking at is no longer as attractive. And there could be other safer comp- safer companies that would be yielding 20% at that point. If you deploy that capital today, you're not necessarily gonna have that available tomorrow to invest. And so if you feel like, I don't know, the near term outlook is negative, it's almost better holding that in cash so that you can then deploy it at a 20% return in even a safer company. Does that make sense?
0: So what really is your angle on, you know, Fed policy and yield curves and, and this <laughs> yeah, kind of stuff, no, right? Yeah, yeah. So macro is one of those things that people intuitively feel like they can have a value added opinion on. But why should they?
1: All right. Like, let's say you see the market sell off, you know, the market sells off 20%. um, Yeah, that's clearly, you know, that's probably a combination of real data points that people are pricing in, as well as whatever's going on from like, a you know, a psychological perspective. And so I think that, but that's information that's telling you something where I guess risk, like the point is that like risk tolerance, for whatever reason, has gone down. Okay. Yeah. And if you're allocating capital and you're thinking about like, you know, a 20% return, that should, you know, objectively be less attractive in that environment when everyone else around you is telling you that risk tolerances have fallen.
0: But to get to that point, though, the decision chain would go something like this. You're saying, here's my view on the macro. It it seems like things are getting like a little too hot here overall, right? No, 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 no,
1: no. no. It starts with a company. Like, let's say you're analyzing Amazon and you're like, Here's my view on Amazon. I think I'm going to get a, you know, 20% return over the next 20 years. Yeah. But then you start to see, you know, the negative economic data points come out, increase in rates, um tariffs, tariff stuff whatever it is, and the market sells off. Now obviously Amazon becomes cheaper at that point because people, you know, adjust their that gets kind of drawn into that as well.
0: But sort of implicit in that view though is that you're going to be able to get there before the market does. You you've got some kind of read through on the way, this macro data point impacts the stock that you're looking at in a way that hasn't already been priced in by that data point already coming out.
1: I still feel like, even though, even though I I know I don't have like a competitive edge from um, analyzing macro stuff, I still feel like sometimes these things just take a longer time to play out. I'd rather be on the sidelines, yeah, yeah. and if it bounces back or whatever, that's fine. But I'd rather just see what opportunities present themselves. You know, I, I think it's like it's nice to have like a cash cushion to buy things like in downturns.
0: I also think like if, you, if you're if you running like a lot of separately managed accounts, it helps from a business perspective to stay up to speed on macro because your clients are probably not calling to ask you about, you know, the sustainability of Shopify's moat, right? Like they want <laughs> to know like, they want to know what you think about the Fed hike or the employment print and so forth.
1: You know, if you're managing an entire portfolio, not just a portfolio of stocks, but a broader portfolio, you would, you would want to think about, you know, risk return across like asset classes, and so that's kind of where it plays out. Yeah, in. exactly. I mean, it is kind of important to to stay abreast of what's going on.
0: Um, so we're just doing IAA this time, right?
1: Yeah, let's just um, we can just cover that whole industry. Okay, it's 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 nice because it's um, you know, it's one of the few industries where you've got like suppliers, the company, and buyers who are all kind of publicly traded.
0: So for who's ever listening, um, all five of you, um, there's, there's a write-up on Copart and IAA on, uh, on the Scuttleblur blog. So you can access that for free. I won't get into the details of the write-up. Copart and IAA. So IAA is a uh, division of uh, car auction services. They operate uh, salvage auto auctions. So if you get into a car accident and you total your car, your insurance company will weigh the cost of repairing the car versus just trying to recoup as much as possible. By selling the damaged vehicle in a salvage auction, and that's what Copart and IAA do—is they they operate these auctions. And so the industry is.
1: And so, and so Dave, we got we got Copart, um, which is publicly traded. Uh-huh. We got Car Auction Services, which is publicly traded. Yeah, and then IAA is a subsidiary of Copart. Oh, sorry, of, of Car. Right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And so yep. the industry—it's basically a duopoly in the U.S. Um, between IAA and Copart. They both combined have eighty percent market share, uh, but. Split evenly, like forty percent each. And so there's this, there's actually this pretty good book uh, called From Junk to Gold. It's a, it's like a memoir by uh, Willis Johnson, who founded Copart. He, he described his business in this way. So I'm just going to read this this little passage from this book here. He says, "We're a utility. Nothing can get rid of us. Nothing. Two of the biggest businesses in the world are car manufacturers and insurance companies. If insurance companies don't write insurance policies on cars." then they're out of business. If manufacturers don't make cars, then they're out of business. They're always gonna make cars and they're always gonna insure them. We're the guy in between. So I think that's-
1: That's kind of weird. They're, they're not really the guy in between insurance companies and- The Automakers. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> right. All right, but there, there's, there's a lot that goes on in between, but uh, approximately right, just in the sense that you need to have, you need someone to uh, make the cars before yeah, those mean- cars can be damaged. <laughs> Like that's a weird quote. Give the guy a break, okay? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Give the old man right. a break.
1: Did I just rip out a legend? I'm not trying to take anything away from the guy. I'm just saying I don't understand the quote. Like, like they're a middleman between <laughs> they're a middleman between insurance companies and um and salvage companies, right? They're not a middleman between auto manufacturers and, and insurance companies. Um, like the auto manufacturers are way upstream on them, you know.
0: You're technically right about that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> te- te- technically or
0: actually correct. You're not wrong, Walter, you're just an asshole. <laughs> you are correct in the sense of like the parties involved in these transactions. I think the point <laughs> that he's just trying to make is that like there's there's always going to be cars yeah. um well, being made. And so there's there's always going to be like a reliable yeah. source of, you know, yeah, supply no, that gets okay. its way to the auction. So it doesn't seem like a like a great business at at first glance, but it actually it's a, it's actually pretty decent i mean there so there are two aspects of scale here you know first as with any marketplace you've got the two-sided network effects between the buyers of the of the of the salvage car so those would be you know used used vehicle dealers rebuilders and then on the other side you've got suppliers and those would be uh, the insurance companies so that's one and then the second is uh the physical footprint now it's not like people are physically appearing at these auctions to bid anymore but a physical footprint is still important because Copart is um, picking up these wrecked cars and hauling them to these locations, and having a dense physical footprint reduces towing and logistics costs.
1: I thought you were going to say so. So I agree with the two side network thing. Yeah, um, but also like stability of demand, which I think that quote was kind of getting to, which is that these salvage auctions have to happen every year, kind of regardless of what's going on in. In the economy and it's a very pre- predictable stable thing right yeah so i i looked at car in 2000 um like 13 or so and i mean at the time i decided it's been a lot of time, i didn't spend enough time researching it um but like the stability of iaa is just it's really amazing i mean you've got just to set it up today you've got almost three um 300 million cars on the road yeah and you know that a certain number of them are, go, are just going to be kind of, first of all, there's going to be like a certain number of accidents that are going to happen yeah, and they're going to need to be salv- salvaged. And then, and then there's, um, a certain number of cars that are just going to be like old and go out of commission and those are going to be salvaged as well. Yeah. And so, um, you've got this like really stable business. And then, as you said, there's, it's the two sided marketplace. And so like the earnings profile today looks you know really strong. And
0: yet there is this, um, pretty big gap between IAA's margins and uh, Copart's margins that needs explaining. And so I think I touched on this a little bit on the, uh, on the write-up, but, but it seemed like you know, the big factor that people point out is that Copart owns its yards, whereas um, IAA tends to lease. And so they recognize that lease expense through the income statement, and so that drives a lot of the wedge, but not all of it. And it seems like even when you account for that, that there's a pretty sizable gap.
1: Well, I think also since your write-up, they came out with um, like the standalone financials for, yeah, for right. IAA. And so you can actually look at EBITDA metrics and um, yes, I mean, you're right. So like for last year, it was like 45% for um, Copart and and 36% for, um, for IAA. I think, I think one thing, I was listening to like one of these car presentations and they were saying that they pointed out the lease expense as being like a driver of the differentials, but EBITDA EBITDA obviously adjusts for that. But the other thing that they pointed out was the fact that IAA runs both physical and online auctions together. So they'll have a physical auction, which will be like, you know, co-run with an online stream, whereas Copart apparently does mostly just online auctions. And so I think they said that accounts for like 150 basis points. Right. which still is is nowhere. I mean you you still have almost 9 base 900 basis point differential.
0: Yeah, so something I've been stewing on is so just to set this up here. So as Michael Porter and others have pointed out, you know, operational excellence is not the same thing as strategy, right? So strategy relates to a set of competitively differentiated activities that you know, that that can't be easily replicated whereas Operational excellence, I think of more as, you know, running a tight ship, keeping your room clean, that kind of stuff. And operational excellence is not the competitively differentiating element. But then somewhat of a counterpoint to that, the way that two companies run their operations can point to persistent cultural differences and corporate cultures can be hard to replicate. So, you know, if you have two companies that dominate an industry like IA and Copart, they both benefit from the scale advantages, two-side network effects, but one of them is relatively more sloppy about costs and integration, slower to invest in new technology than you can imagine it falling behind right? when it comes to margins and, and returns. And we can say, in theory, that operational excellence can be copied, but the problem is that in practice, we know that some companies are just not set up organizationally or, cu- or culturally to to make the hard decisions.
1: The other thing is also, I mean, Copart outside the U S they buy cars and then they sell cars as well. Yes. And so, um, that's actually a, a lower margin business for them. And so yeah, the fact that they're still putting up margins that are 900 basis points above their competitor, even with, you know, over 10% of the revenue coming from this really low margin business, it's kind of impressive.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so Copart divides its segments. Um, uh, splits it up international U.S. and now you can see that in IAA in the form ten, um, so you can see that margin differential loud and clear. So some of these um, differences, that the soft differences that I was referring to, were were pointed out in in, in that book that I that I referenced earlier from from Junk to Gold. So I guess you know when you, when you look at like Copart's history, they really pioneered like a new business model in this space. In in the past, insurance companies used to just pay Copart in IAA. A series of fees for like towing the car for storing it and then there were seller fees that sometimes exceeded the price that the insurance that the insurers actually realized at the auction so copart introduced like a percentage incentive program where rather than charge all these fees they just took like a cut of the auction proceeds which um de-risk things for insurers and then made copart uh an aligned partner and that's sort of like the model for the industry And um, then there's other stuff like, so when when Copart would purchase a yard, they would quickly integrate it so that it ran on the same computer systems, had the same service culture. And so they started to build like this reputation for consistency across these various yards.
1: And I I think that's a super important point. I mean, you've got all the investments in technology are are critical when you're talking about like this type of business, right? Like it's not just, it's not just storing cars and then transporting them, but it's, you know, uploading images to the web, it's providing um, estimate um, values of cars at, you know, at salvage. It's it's just a, a lot of de- uh, the data and, and and analysis to help insurers feel comfortable that they're making the right decision. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's that type of stuff that would probably cost a lot of money for a smaller guy who just runs a, like a random, um, you know, random yard to, to to be able to like to replicate.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and uh, Copart was apparently like really early to this game in investing in technology. IA, it seems, at least according to, uh, to this guy's account, was maybe a little bit behind the ball. It, it just sounds like IA wanted to meet Wall Street's growth expectations, so they would just be buying up all these yards as fast as they could. And they were less focused on integrating and running them well. They were also focused on big cities, while Copart focused on rural areas where the land was cheaper and there was less competition. And then... I guess Willis Johnson just talks about how like IA management would show up to meetings wearing it, in meetings and limos, uh, wearing like fancy suits, whereas he would be driving his own rental car, wearing cowboy boots. <laughs> it just seems like there are, um, if, if you believe his account, at least various, um, cultural differences between these two companies Yeah, that were, that seemed pretty deeply, um, rooted, you know,
1: one thing that I thought was interesting was that, IAA talks about not owning their land as a competitive advantage because it gives them the, them the flexibility to move between locations based upon demand shifts. Whereas, you know, obviously Copart owns a lot of their land, and you know, Ia is basically saying they're stuck. To me, that doesn't really make sense, right? Yeah, like, right. You know, right. Anyone can anyone can rent land. I mean, right. It's harder to actually. I mean, there's value to owning owning property, um, right. but it also brings up the question of like what are the barriers to entry to actually physically? So you've got the, the technology, which we, we talked about briefly. And if the technology, you have the two-sided marketplace. So those those are two things that are hard to replicate and create barriers to entry. Yeah. But then also like the physical um, land. I'm just wondering, like, do you know, is that a real barrier to entry? Like, are there significant regulatory hurdles to, to setting up a... Um, like an auction yard essentially I'm,
0: I'm pretty sure there are like some nimby rules that apply here but i think um the bigger hurdle is just that if you want to compete with ia or copart it would be like you would have to have this system set up from like day one right because there there are just these scale advantages to having local density you could always like just buy like one yard or two yard two yards or something like that but you just wouldn't yeah. be able to like scale that to the same degree. And because and, and for that reason, you wouldn't be able to compete with, with Copart and, and IAA on, on, on scale. And uh and you also obviously wouldn't have like the, the two sided marketplace, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean I think you're right. Like the the marketplace thing has gotta be critical. I mean, an insur- any insurance company who's looking to auction their car would want to make sure that they have the biggest buying pool available. And so if you and I just went out and bought a a yard I don't think that would so um let me actually just segue into another point that I want to yeah I had a question on and I'm not sure if you have, you have you know the answer so carr talks about the salvage rate of accidents stepping up over time and so you look at over the last since 2015 I think it's gone from like 14 percent to like 18 percent of accidents are total loss yeah and and so to me I, I wonder like why is that happening i mean that's a very that's a pretty dramatic shift in a in a very short amount of time and um they talk about like the age of vehicles but like if you look back over the last three years like the age hasn't changed that dramatically you know technological innovation people tweeting and stuff like that again these are all factors that really haven't changed sorry haven't really changed in the last like three years so like why does that like why is why are you seeing this dramatic shift and so on one hand it got me a little bit like um skeptical that like we're at this inflated level right now for whatever for for reason that i can't really pinpoint and that that it'll revert back to the historical norm of like 14 percent, which it had been for like decades and so that kind of got me nervous on like near-term numbers well i guess
0: so here here's i guess the way i i think about this um okay so you you have like like the accident rate and then you've got the 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 loss rate right on the accident rate side you know, you, you can make sort of the case that we're sort of in this weird valley where cars have gotten safer over time, but technology has gotten more distracting with texting and, and whatnot. And so that could be one factor explaining sort of the blip. And then in the salvage rate, it's just these cars are just getting far more complicated to, to repair because there's just a lot more technology going into them.
1: Do you feel like that's changed that dramatically over the last like two years though? So? Like people, people have had iPhones for a long time, you know?
0: Yeah. I can you know? see like the texting and distracted driving thing like that. I don't know. There, there did seem to be some, some meat behind that. It's just become like a more serious problem apparently over the last like three to five years. And then on the, on the, so, uh, on the salvage uh, side. So whether or not these cars go to get repaired or go to the salvage auction, they've just got more expensive to repair. And so that's just tilted the scales in favor of sending them to salvage.
1: I heard somewhere recently, like like the lifespan of cars is expanding. So like, you know, cars are lasting 250, 300,000 miles yeah. now and can last like, you know, however, 20 years or whatever it is. Yeah, And so, you know, both Copart and IAA say like, oh, the, the, the fleet age and the in the U S is very old, we're at 11 and a half years. Mm-hmm. But, um, and you compare that to like 2000 when it was like nine years, but you know, to your point, technology has improved. And what if that also means that the lifespan of these cars is improved? So like, you know, they don't have to be taken out of the fleet as often as they necessarily would otherwise. So
0: you're saying that these guys have like an iPhone problem. Are you we talk about <laughs> Apple now? Uh, yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't thought about that. Um, but it's a it's a it's a point. I mean, think.
1: it's all and these are all points that you there's no there's no like data that you can put behind it. I mean, maybe there is. I haven't yeah. done it, but like they're just like qualitative things I've been thinking about. Yeah, makes sense. Because like at, at first when I looked at this, at first when I looked at this, I'm like, oh, really high quality business, but I'm also like, it's a high valuation, and there are some like concerns that I have.
0: So I guess for me. Um this is really just a story about the margin difference and whether or not, sorry, whether or not the margin difference is structural and, and hard to fix. And and if yep. it is structural and we shouldn't expect returns and margins to improve from here, you know, what are we willing to pay for this company? And so like the home run scenario is that IA's margins reset higher. The market acknowledges this as being sustainable and then puts like a copart multiple on top of that, right? And let me know what you think here on, on valuation. But I guess my thought here is that You know, if this thing comes out at, um, you know, 10 times EBITDA or less, you know, that wouldn't really be pricing in an upside scenario, right? It would basically be assuming more of the same. IAA, their EBITDA is like, uh, like 370 or something. It it looks like very little of CAR's corporate overhead is being carried over here. And they're levering this thing up three and a half times. So that makes this a, a spec rate credit. It's one for one, right? So you're getting one share of IAA for every share of CAR. So, you know, if you wanted to buy this thing for less than, you know, let's say 10 times EBITDA or like a mid, less than a mid-teens free cash flow, that, uh, I guess that sort of implies, let's see, what's the share count here? Um, Because like a share price less than 19, right? Like less than 19 or 20. Maybe maybe it makes sense to to explore it in in greater detail. What do you think about that?
1: These are situations that I I just love where you have... You've got this like theoretical opportunity, which exist like, you know, operating improvement story. And then you also have like a margin differential or sorry, a, uh, a multiple differential. And so I think that they actually present really um, interesting long opportunities to the extent that the market values something at a discounted multiple to a higher quality peer. Off of numbers that do not reflect any of the operating improvement in story, you don't need both to be right. You just need one of them to to be right. And so, any sort any sort of operating improvement that that the company shows, you'll see like massive re-rating of the company. But if it just continues to operate at, at its existing mar- margin rate, then like it's already trading at a discounted uh, multiple, and so like your downside is kind of limited. I don't know. Do you remember like we looked at like Voya yeah, back in the yeah. past? it was kind of like the same situation where that was being IPO'd from, you know, their parent company, ING and was not, it, it was ING, right? Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. It was ING.
1: Yeah. So they were, they are being IPO'd from their parent company and it came out at a multiple, well below its peer set. And um, it also, it, it was a multiple, well below its peer set and it didn't bake in any sort of, you know, of the operating improvements that they outlined. And so I feel like in a situation, if like IAA were to IPO, at like 20 bucks, which you said. I mean, I feel like that's definitely a buy at that point. 10 times EBITDA versus Copart at like 14. Pretty big differential from a multiple perspective. And that that gives them no credit for any sort of uplift, uplift in margin profile. Now, I think you're right. Like, you know, I, I don't know the name close enough whether whether they have plans to, to improve the margins, but <clears throat> 900, even if you give them say 150 relates to like the dual internet, um, physical hosting issues that still like leave seven fifty of differential. Yeah. You know, I guess the 10 times doesn't assume any sort of head like, you know, progress in that front either.
0: Yeah. It it seems like even just from an absolute value perspective, you're buying this thing at 10 times. It's, it's still a high quality company that does, you know, at least looking at, at the old financials, like, you know, high teens, pre-tax return on assets.
1: Yeah. Can I, I guess one thing I have is, I mean, it's unrelated really to the, to, um, operations or anything but just from a valuation perspective i mean um it it seems like copart's trading at like north of a 20 times free cash flow multiple yeah and i feel like that's pretty high i mean yes this is a very high quality business you know duopoly steady steady demand drivers and like you know high barrier century all that stuff but I mean, at north of 20 times, you're assuming that there's going to be significant terminal value to this business or like a long life of it. And there are some real like existential risks to this. I mean, in 10 years, is it possible that people like that a lot of people don't own their own cars or that um, there's autonomous driving in the world and that collision rates have fallen? I mean, I feel like that's a real risk, even in 20 years. I mean, at 20 years, like... You'd have to assume autonomous driving is going to be a real thing, and at a twenty times multiple, I just feel like that's it's not really baking in that risk.
0: Yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, I can't touch this <laughs> at where it's like trading right now. It's um, it's just too rich.
1: Do you think a lot of people care about like those? Lo- it's a, it's such a, like a longer term thesis where you're like, it's hard to say exactly when it happens or how much of an impact it has. But this is sort of there, you know? relates
0: to the point that we were talking about um, last time, where you're you're thinking about near to medium term growth that is priced in, and you're you may be overly discounting a longer term existential risk. So in this case, it's um, it's Europe, it's the European opportunity for Copart, right? Um, I, I think the multiple is is baking in growth growth in uh, you know Germany and and possibly elsewhere in continental Europe but yeah i mean I, I don't know that I don't know that um autonomous driving and fleeted vehicles are are uh, are front and center in people's mind
1: all right well, I think we uh kind of covered the bases on this one. What do you think
0: yeah yeah i think uh I think we're done here
1: i think i think it'll be it'll be interesting to monitor i mean it'll happen uh in the next what um first half of this year right
0: I'm not clear what the timing is
1: it'll happen soon. Um, so okay, be,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh so thanks for listening everyone. Um if you want to reach out to us, contact information is in the show notes and we'll speak with you next time. Thanks.